Amen and amen. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Good morning, Rock family. It is good to see you. I am literally running on 100% adrenaline right now because I just got back from a trip to Philadelphia. So, um, you know, if I start jumping around, it's to keep me up, okay? But today we have a very special day. It's not a funeral service. This is not a coffin. This is our baptistry. We are baptizing eight people today. Praise God. So for those of you who are getting baptized today, I may forget to tell you to get ready. So like around like 11, 20, if I have not said anything to you, get up and get ready, okay? Go, go get changed. I won't take it personally. It's not like a whole row of people are leaving me because they don't like me. I hope that's not what it is, but they're getting ready for baptism. Uh, you know, it's a baptism like we know. This is, this is one of the first steps of growth for a believer. The Bible describes it as our public profession of faith. That, you know, I mean, honestly, God could have had us take out a billboard. God could have had us write a letter to a bunch of people. In 2021, he could have made us put out a blog or like, you know, I'm getting baptized.com or .org if you don't want to get charged, right? But that's not what God wants us to do. God literally says in his word and through the example of Jesus Christ and through the example of the, of the New Testament saints, the way that we as believers publicly profess our faith in Jesus Christ. And if you look at the way the Bible and the way it works out, it's as soon as you can after you get saved. Obviously, you should be convicted to do it, but this is something that should move you. You are baptized to publicly profess who Jesus Christ is. It's one of the first signs of growth. Growth is important, right? Like how do we know, how do we know things are healthy when they grow? How do we know that there are things that may not supposed to be growing that are growing? How do we know that they're there? They grow. So growth is, for all intents and purposes, the most sure way of knowing where you stand in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Growth is, is everything. If you're not growing, what are you doing? Yeah. If we're not growing, we're either dying, we're definitely backsliding. So, so one of the things that I want us to think about today, especially as we tie it in and as we close out this series on, on doubt, is that God can work not only through your doubt, God can also grow you through the doubt that you have. Because let me ask you a question. If everything in your life, spiritually speaking, has always been hunky-dory, and I mean, you're literally singing like Southern gospel music in your soul all day because nothing is wrong. I just keep walking along. You know what I mean? If, that, if that's your life all the time, I, I'm not sure whether that growth is deep. I mean, it may wind up on Disney Plus as a musical special, but it's not deep, right? Those of us who have been through valleys in, in our life, we know that's where growth happens. So this idea of what it means to grow, what, what I don't want us to get from this is that growth is just something that naturally happens over time, no matter what, in your Christian life. It takes work to grow, thing, grow things. Amen, farmers? Right? It just doesn't happen. And sometimes you try your hardest and it still don't happen. Growth isn't easy. Growth 
is one of the most positive words or positive things that happens in scripture. But on the other hand, growth is one of the hardest things that happens through scripture. And sometimes it's through pain and sometimes it's through agony. And then when you add doubt on top of that, growth sometimes seems impossible. But when growth happens, we know where it came from. And so I'm going to bring you to a very familiar portion of scripture today. And you're going to wonder why I'm reading for this one, because it's not Easter. I want you to join me in John chapter 20. If you could please stand in respect for the public reading of God's word. John chapter 20. And the Bible says this. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple that the one Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen clothes lying there. The wrapping had been on on his head, was not lying with the linen clothes, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first had also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. Verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she was crying, she stooped and looked into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been laying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them. And I don't know where they put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing that he was a gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, please tell me where you've put him and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my father, your, your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And she told them what he said to her. When it was evening of the first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, then they are forgiven them. If, if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came so the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails on his, in his hands and put my finger into the mark of the nails, I will put my hand into his side and put my hand into his side. I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look, in my, and look at my hands. 
Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks for standing. You can be seated. One of the, one of the most interesting things about this passage of scripture in John chapter 20 is that John chapter 20 is mixed with a lot of emotion, a lot of suspense, some answers. But one of the things that sometimes I think we fail to realize is that there was tremendous growth happening in the life of the disciples, but they still had a way to go, right? They weren't perfect at this point. They still didn't understand everything, but they were growing. And for us, that, that needs to be an encouragement to us because it's not... Growth isn't the end of the journey. Growth is the journey, right? And sometimes when we're, when we're growing, we look for growth and we're looking for this like particular benchmark that we say, what? Now we're grown, right? The problem is that you and I must realize that in our spiritual life, just like our physical life, there's always growth to happen. There's always more for us to know. There's always deeper that we can get into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It starts with salvation. It's professed through baptism, but it continues through discipleship and outreach and continuing to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To grow is to know Jesus, right? To grow is to know him deeper, is to know him fuller, is to know him more on an intimate level. And this is what John chapter 20 begins to show us, how the disciples have these intimate moments with Jesus that causes them to grow, but not fully arrive. And that's why I think it's so important for us to recognize this, especially if we're, if we're dealing with doubt, if we're dealing with not having answers to questions, not, having, not knowing everything that's, that, that's supposed to happen. What happens in our life is that we grow and then if we don't get past a certain stage or we begin to plateau, those doubts start to come back. And God is trying to knock these walls down. But the problem is until those walls get knocked down or until we allow him to knock the next wall down, we start to doubt. And the thing is, we forget what he's done. We forget how he's brought us from point A to the present part, uh, point that where we are right now. And we think all of a sudden that things have never been the same. This is true about the ancient uh, Israelites. God did miraculous things for them. But whenever something went wrong, it was as if they completely forgot what God had done for them before or at all. And if you're honest with yourself, don't you get to that point? No one else may never know it, but don't you get to the point of your life that something goes wrong and you ask the question, was God ever for me? And you get really emotional and you really start to wonder. And the thing is, at that crossroad, either you're going to go down a path of bitterness or you're going to get into the word and you're going to ask God to remind you of all the things that he's done for you. So the disciples in John chapter 20 were experiencing all the things that I just talked about in real time. So this was three days later after Jesus Christ had just suffered, bled, and died for the sins of the world. Humanly speaking for them, their leader had just been martyred. 
He was in a tomb. And then the story picks up with, with Mary. And Mary is at the tomb. And when she came to the tomb, she came early. It was still dark. And what was the first thing that Mary saw? The tomb was empty, which means, first of all, the tomb was open. So if you know anything about the story of what happened to Jesus, after he died, he's, he was buried in a tomb that wasn't his. It was borrowed and it was given by uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who was, who was a rich man, who was, a, who was a, a secret believer, just like Nicodemus was. And they buried the body of Jesus. And the Roman government not only put this huge stone in front of the tomb, they also sealed it so that no one would think about stealing the body. Because remember, they started hearing about this, this, this theological point that they didn't believe, that Jesus Christ would rise again from the dead. And they didn't think it was happening, but what they did think was that the disciples would try to make like it happened, remove the stone and remove his body to say, look, look, Jesus rose again from the grave. So what he did was he, they stuck this big tomb with the seal and guarded the tomb with Roman centurion so that nobody could mess with the tomb at all, right? So when Mary gets there, she sees this huge stone rolled away that shouldn't have been able to have been moved and the stone wasn't only removed from the tomb. But if you look at the other gospels, these guys were knocked out. The Roman centurions were knocked out and it, lo it looked like somebody robbed the tomb, but it had to have been a bunch of people or a really, really big person who've done this. And so Mary doesn't go inside the tomb. The Bible says that she goes, she runs to Simon Peter and the other disciple who Jesus loved, who is John, the person who wrote, who wrote this gospel. And he said to them, this is what Mary says immediately. They've taken Jesus out of the tomb. They removed his body and they didn't tell us where it is. I don't know where the body of Jesus is. And let me ask you a question. For a New Testament saint, for us to say, I don't know where the body is, is doubt. Is it not? It's not in the tomb, but we just don't believe Jesus is not in a tomb. We believe that Jesus Christ rose again. It's not just about the empty tomb or the cross without Jesus on it. It's the fact that Jesus right now is sitting at the right hand of the Father and is our living Savior. So Mary, still at this point, has grown, but there's still doubt. They've heard Jesus talk about this, that I will be, I will die three days later. I will rise myself up. They've heard that. They heard it during the last supper and they were like, that's weird and kept eating. Remember, they still thought Jesus was going to be this Messiah that was going to rescue them from captivity. And so Mary, her first thought is to go to practicality rather than faith. And my friends, this is going to be one of the biggest issues when you look at growing through doubt is that when we always look at human means and human explanations instead of realizing that Jesus does the miraculous. And so we stay in our doubt. We stay in our guilt. We stay in our second level type of Christianity. Why? Because we always look for human explanation instead of the, the working of God in our life. And even, my friends, as good churchgoers, we do this. Couple of minutes when you get out of here. There's going to be a copy of a budget for next year. 
And there's going to be a summary of all the things that we'd like to see God do next year. And some of us, we're going to go, I just don't see how it's going to happen. I only give this much. I don't think anybody else gives as much as I do. I do the math. I can't do this. And God's looking down at you like saying, man, I cured cancer. I've seen people healed in this church. I mean, the rock is seeing people saved. People are getting baptized. But I guess, yeah, your checkbook's not going to cover it. We always wind up looking for human solutions to God-sized problems. And that's where doubt seeps in. You want to have God put you on your back? Start telling him you do everything. He'll knock you out and show, show you how he does it. And so Mary, Mary, who's one of the closest ones to Jesus, and I would say one of the ones that loved him the most, still didn't get it. Her first thought was the body's not there. It wasn't that he rose again. It was that what? Someone stole the body. This is how God can grow us in our doubt by us realizing that there is a living Lord. Amen? All right, so I want us to look at verse... Three, at that Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. And then I want you to uh, read again what it says down um, in verse 10. Then the disciples returned to the place that they were staying. Okay, so, so here's, here's what's happening in the story. Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. They heard what Mary was saying, and they went to go look. And the Bible says that they were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Now, I don't know, but it seems like, you know, John's throwing shade at Peter, right? Like, yeah, we ran together, but I ran that sucker, and I got there first, right? It's funny how, like, the Holy Spirit allowed that to be written for us to read for all time. But it's, like, basically, like, put all history, Peter can't run, John can Right? I, mean, that's, I, love, I love how John took this, this liberty in his own, like, you know, yeah, I was with Peter, but uh, he was back there and I was here, right? And then the Holy Spirit lets it stay there. So stooping down, John sees the linen clothes lying there and he did not go in. Again, so here's another area of doubt. Doubt sometimes limits us in our sight, but also doubt limits us in our ability to continue to go deeper. Okay, this is this happens all the time. Doubt not only makes us rely on human speculation or human reasoning, doubt sometimes stops us dead in our tracks. They were there. They saw the stone rolled away, right? The Roman centurions were knocked out. They weren't going to bother them. Mary stops at the door. John stops, looks in, but still doesn't go in. Doubt or lack of spiritual understanding or lack of spiritual growth causes us to stop instead of move forward. And this, I believe, is where a lot of us get into our life that we have gotten to a certain point in our faith, but we haven't either pulled the trigger on receiving Jesus as our savior or really starting to surrender our life over to him or answering calls that God is clearly giving us, we stop. We stop because of our doubt. We stop because we haven't reached this level of spiritual understanding. So if you're here today and you're like, man, Rob, I just feel like I'm at this point where I can't go any further or like we've used the phrase plateauing, right? That happens sometimes because of doubt. 
And remember what we said, doubt usually isn't that there is some lack of knowledge of who Jesus is. Doubt a lot of the times is just us forgetting what God did in the past and using that to understand that God will continue to work in the future. And this is what was happening to the disciples. John goes a little bit further than Mary. Then verse 6, following him, I love I have to put that in there again, you know, Simon Peter's behind me. Simon Peter also came, and he entered the tomb. So this is where John eats some humble pie. I beat Peter to the tomb, but I didn't go in. Peter went in. And that's just like Peter, right? Peter, Peter would be the guy to go in. He is that guy. He's the guy that would continue to go further. I don't know if it was faith or just because that's what Peter does. Peter doesn't do anything slow. Peter is either going to hit a home run or he's going to, like, blow up the ballpark. Like, he is, this is the guy. And so he goes in, and he enters the tomb, and he sees the linen clothes lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen clothes, but it was folded up a separate place by itself. Peter sees this, and it looks like when you'll see in the next verse, he reports this to the other two. And one of the things I see, you know, obviously the clothes, the linen clothes that Jesus was wrapped in, they were there. That makes sense, right? Um, have you ever uh, gotten out of bed really quickly in the morning and haven't made the bed? What does that bed look like, right? Things are thrown all over the place. You don't know how you slept in that monstrosity, but you did, right? Things are everywhere. But he notices something different. It's not just that these linen clothes are off. What was the other thing about that? That, that this wrapping that it would have been on the head, okay? Now, this is where they would finish up. They would, they would wrap the body with spices and balming and all these different things. They would wrap it tight, almost like a mummification, almost like that, right? And then at the end, they would put more spices, and they would again anoint the head, and then they would wrap up the head. This linen that wrapped up the head wasn't just thrown there. It was what? folded neatly. Now I want you to think about something, especially with Jewish, Jewish custom and Jewish code and some things we even carry on today. In Jewish culture, when you were finished eating a meal, the napkin that they gave you, and they would use cloth napkins as well, just like we would do in, in a very you know, formal setting. When you were done eating, they would wipe their face and they would put the napkin on the plate to say, hey, I'm done. And then the servants would come by or the person who was heading the party would come and take the plate. If you had to leave for any reason, but you were coming back, you wouldn't throw the napkin, you would fold it. To say, hey, I'm not done, I'll be back. And when Jesus puts this cloth, everything else is thrown away, but he goes, I am with you always. To the end of the age, I am not here. I am risen. And he shows them that he's back. I don't know if they got that fully, but John took pain at it because here he writes again, John, that stinker, the other disciple, you know, who, you know, I, who reached the tomb first. Back to my story. Peter gets to see something I didn't because I didn't have enough faith to go in. Peter goes in and gets to see this napkin, but I beat him to the tomb. He says this. They all went in, saw it, and what happened? They believed. Abraham believed and accounted for righteousness. This is the, one of the moments where some of the disciples finally know who Jesus is. They saw it and they believed. One of the biggest benchmarks of your spiritual journey 
is finally recognizing who Jesus is. Not who grandma said he was, not who you learned in Sunday school, but for you, who he is. And Jesus needs to be your personal Lord and Savior, not just the leader of your religion. And if you haven't entered a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, he has been giving you signs and wonders throughout your entire life. He he has moved through history for you to be here right now to hear what the word of God says, that God loves you and wants to have a personal relationship with you through his son, Jesus Christ, who is not in a tomb, but died for your sins and rose again so that you can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. He rose again. He wasn't there, and they believed. Then the disciples returned to the place that they were staying. So uh, John and Peter leave the scene, but, but Mary's still there. And Mary was crying. And she stooped into the tomb, and so she went in. Now she goes in. She sees the two angels, and she sees them sitting where Jesus' body is. Now remember, John and Peter don't talk about two angels being there, right? So now Mary goes in. She sees these two angels, and they ask her a question. And I love how, you know, I mean, angels, God can use angels for anything, right? And usually God uses angels to do what? kill people and destroy all nations and, you know, use them to wreak havoc on people who've gone against him. And sometimes he uses angels to pronounce messages like Gabriel and Michael the archangel, but sometimes he uses angels to do really cool stuff. And these angels just come and they carry on a conversation. Hey, why are you crying? What's going on? Because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they put him. So it looks like in this passage, John and Peter didn't spend so much time explaining to Mary what was going on. It looks like John and Peter may have gone into the tomb and Mary still hadn't yet. But Mary was one of their closest disciples. Mary was one of their closest friends. But they go and leave and they leave Mary there and Mary's still wondering what's going on and still believes somebody stole the body. Here's one thing I want want to mention to you real quickly. If God has worked in your life, just like he worked in the life of John and Peter, don't leave the scene or hold it in. Let other people know what's going on. Some of you are so concerned about your spiritual growth, you don't think about the people around you. If we are a family in Jesus Christ, we are only going to be as strong as our weakest member. So it is our responsibility to make sure that we understand who Jesus is and we share it with other people. So she's crying, and the angel said, who are you seeking? Why are you crying? Jesus shows up, and he asks her this question. Why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? So now the angels leave, and they say, hey, this is, the angel's message is not enough. I know, and I think you agree with me, right? Angel's messages are cool, but I want to hear from Jesus. I don't care about what the angels say. You know, I want to hear from Jesus. So Jesus comes to her, and he says, why are you crying? And she goes, sir, if you've carried, so, she, so doubt also makes you suppose who people are. She immediately, like, in her mind, thought this was the gardener, Right? She's not asking questions, she's just supposing things. Doubt makes you do this. You just assume things without getting the facts. And so she says she's the gardener. He says, hey, just just give the body back. And then Jesus just calls her Mary. And she says, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus says, because I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I'm ascending to my Father and your father to my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and she told him what he said to her. So, John, we see le different levels of growth here. We see different levels of interaction so far with what, what happened with the, with the risen Savior. You see that Mary gets there first, uh, doesn't go in and assume certain things happen. Uh, Simon Peter and John come. Uh, John gets there first, gets to the door, sees something, does not go in. Peter goes a little bit further. He goes in and sees something. John joins him. They believe and they leave. They leave Mary to herself, and then Mary talks to two angels, talks to a guy she thinks is the gardener, winds up as Jesus, and Mary sees Jesus face to face. Now think about what happens here. John and Peter believed because they, because they saw the clothes. Mary still thought and made assumptions, and Jesus shows himself to be who he is. I submit, you, submit to you today, ladies and gentlemen, that in our greatest moments of doubts, Jesus doesn't forsake us, he comes closer. And your Savior loves you so much that he's not waiting for you to get, to get all your theology right or wait for you to get to this, this, this little precipice of faith. When Jesus sees that you're in doubt, Jesus comes to you. And the problem is Jesus comes to you and we don't receive him. The receiving that you have of Jesus Christ being your Savior, you received him because he sought you out. We love him because he first loved us. It's not by accident that you know Jesus. He sought you out. And Jesus sought Mary out in her greatest moment of weakness and making false assumptions. Jesus says, Mary. And I'm telling you, Jesus is calling out your name right now and telling you who he is, the risen son of God who wants to pay the price for your sins and be your savior. So Mary goes and tells the disciples everything that happened. Now, so here's the question. If you, if you were either John or Peter and you saw these events and then Mary comes to you and say, hey, I saw Jesus, what do you think you'd do at that moment? To me, it'd be like, where is he, right? But no, here are our disciples, the founding fathers of our church, ladies and gentlemen. When they were evening time on the first day, the disciples were together and the doors were locked because they were fearful of the Jews. Doubt causes you to fear and to forget all the things that God has shown you already. And don't get too mad at the disciples because you and I do the same thing all the time. We have this tremendous moment of growth and something happens and we go right back to where we were in the beginning. And they were, they, and it's funny because they're not even scared of the Romans, they're scared of the Jews. Because now, think about this for a second, why were they so fearful of the Jews? Well, remember, if the story is that most of these people are going to think that, they're going, that they were going to try to make a fake resurrection happen and get rid of the body, and now it's getting around that this tomb is empty and Roman centurions were knocked out, and all of a sudden, they're scared the Jews are going to come and blame them. Again, get this, the resurrection happens and the disciples think it's their fault. Have you ever had something going wrong in your life and all of a sudden you know that God can fix it, but you're like, it's up to me. It's my fault. If I don't do it, no one's going to do it. 
These disciples were not only fearful, they forgot who Jesus was. Who cares about the Jews? Jesus is alive. Honestly, my friends, your issues are not to be uh, messed with. Your issues are not to, uh, are not to be um, you know, placated to make less than what they are. But my friends, in light of Jesus, your issues can be handled. I'm telling you, over and over and over again, and you can ask many people here at The Rock, we have had issues, we have had situations in our personal life, and Jesus has been bigger than all of them. Ask somebody, they'll tell you. Trust me, ask somebody, they will tell you story after story of Jesus being bigger than the circumstances. And Jesus says, don't lock that door. Don't lock a door, come on. So Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, peace be with you. Now, this is awesome, because Jesus is the greatest, like, you know, like, picking the lock of a door that I've ever seen in my life. Like, he doesn't even pick a lock. He just kind of walks through. What's up, guys? He just appears. They never said they they didn't unlock the door, right? They're still locked in there, and all of a sudden, they're talking. Man, I don't know what's going to happen. Jesus goes, hey, everybody. How's it going? Jesus showed up. Jesus always shows up for you. Do you know that? He always shows up for you. In your biggest moments of doubt, even in your biggest moments of fear and worry, when it's, it's, it's unsubstantiated because we know who Jesus is, Jesus shows up. And I love what he says to them. Peace be with you. He doesn't go, hey, numbskulls. Where were you at the cross? I mean, if, if you were Jesus, wouldn't you be like, hey, love how I was hang, hanging there and you guys weren't. Love it. Thanks. But no, peace be with you. And it's just a greeting, right? But man, Jesus is the source of peace. So when Jesus says, peace be with you, he literally is saying, I'm here with you. So he's with them and he, and, he, and he gives them this comfort. And having said this, he shows them the hands in his side. And I, it doesn't say it, but I'm wondering if the disciples thought that. Who's this guy? Is this really him? Come on. No, that's a good makeup job. Are you just Jesus? And Jesus goes, bam. Oh. I mean, it's kind of disgusting in one way, right? Like, here are my wounds. But who, I mean, how else were they going to believe? I mean, you're going to find out that's exactly what Thomas was thinking. So he goes right away, doesn't even wait, doesn't miss a beat. Here are my hands. Here's my side. And so the disciples, what, what happened? Seeing Jesus as the risen Lord who sacrificed for our sins causes joy. Seeing the resurrected Lord and knowing what he's done for us causes joy. That's different just knowing as a theological fact because you grew up in church that Jesus rose again from the dead. It's not just that. It's the fact that he died and was tortured and beaten for your sin and you recognize what all that means. That's where there's joy. Having said this, and so Jesus says to them again, peace be with you. And then he says, as the Father sent me, I also send you. After this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And so this is, we know later on, the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit will, will 
descend and end, fall on every believer. But we see these moments that individual pockets of disciples begin to receive the Holy Spirit because this task is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So God, God in his economy doesn't dole out the Spirit to, to everyone until Pentecost because it's a gradual increase till that day when the church is going to begin to function. And he gives them the Holy Spirit. And he says this, if, if sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. If they're not, they're retained. And what he means is, and this is something that we understand, if somebody receives Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells them, their sins are forgiven, and, and, and they remain eternally secure. If someone rejects Jesus Christ, they are still in their sin, and they have no security of salvation. So if anyone whose sins are forgiven, those are those who receive it. Those who don't, don't. So he makes a very clear line. The, the, the clear line between someone who knows Jesus and someone who doesn't know Jesus is whether or not they have the Holy Spirit. He makes this very clear to them. But Thomas, okay, one of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. So the disciples were telling him, Thomas, Thomas, we've seen Jesus. And he goes, and I don't know if he was exaggerating or maybe because they told him that what they saw, he goes, unless I see the nails, the mark of the nails. And unless I see, unless I can put my finger on the nails, unless I can put my hand in his side, I will never believe. And I don't know if he was using hyperbole or if he was just trying to, to like really emphasize the point, but like they saw the nails, he wants to touch the wound. Gross. I want to put my hand in his side. Ugh. I don't think it's because Tom is that, you know, geeky kid that wants to, oh, that's really cool. No, that's not what I think it is. I think he's making a point. Yeah, I know you, no, no, I, I'm, I really don't get this. So I want to go one step further than you guys. I really want to have tangible evidence of who Jesus is. Hebrews chapter 11 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen for by this the elders obtained a good report we believe in a savior that we've never seen but we know that he's real because our lives have been changed and sometimes you and i are looking for tangible answers to something that goes beyond tangibility and we want to see idols and we want to see, we want to see all these emotional responses all the time. We want to be happy all the time because then we can see Jesus. And your relationship with Jesus Christ is so much more than just being able to see something. It's knowing who he is because knowing who you were before and who you are now and seeing him work in the past and seeing him work now. That's who we know who Jesus is. So Thomas makes this outlandish statement, but statements based on the fact of they showed him what it was. They got to see his hands. They got to see his side. So he's taking it a step further. Okay, so this doesn't come out of nowhere that I want to see his hands. I want to feel. No, it's because they saw this. He wants to see more. So a week later, okay, remember the last things that we've heard is Thomas says, I will never believe unless he gets to see and touch and feel, right? So a week goes by. And I love that a week goes by because I love how Jesus takes the time to let us start thinking for a little bit. I love how sometimes, I, I hate it when it happens, but I love looking back 
and realizing the moments when Jesus doesn't speak, it's because he's working. And he's working in the background. And he's also allowing me to have the time to maybe vent, maybe cool down, maybe have my, my reality come back into play and not make decisions based on emotion. Sometimes Jesus allows you to sit in your own issues in order for him to be able to deal with it. So he gives Thomas a week. A week. A week's a long time, right? A lot can change in a week. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, again, with the doors locked, these guys. So when I married my, my wife uh, and I started like, you know, hanging out a lot with her family, those people never locked their doors. And they lived in suburban Philadelphia and they never locked their doors. I come out here to the country, I go, oh, come on in. I've never, I've never experienced that before until I visited somebody and I hear them, hey, come on in. I mean, where I'm from, it's like, yeah, hey, come and ch -ch -ch. Who's there? People don't knock on your door where I live. That don't happen. You better have texted or called first. But again, their, their doors are locked. They are still fearful, okay? Remember, doubt is still creeping in. They're hearing more and more. They have now seen Jesus and still have their doors locked. Some of us have seen and experienced Jesus, but we have still locked our doors in fear. We still haven't gotten to the point that we truly trust Jesus. So Jesus again comes in, again, doesn't talk about him unlocking the door, doesn't talk about him knocking, he again just appears. And again, same thing, peace be with you. And I love it because it's, it's like deja vu, right? He's like, hey, this is what Thomas wants, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna give Thomas exactly what he needs, I'm gonna give him exact, the same exact way the disciples do it, but here's the grace and mercy of our God. He said to Thomas, he didn't wait for Thomas, like, you know, passive-aggressively. You know, like, I'm here. You want to do this, right? This is disgusting, but... He goes, hey, Thomas, come here. Put your finger in here and look in my hands. He's like that little pre-K teacher who loves a kid who gets dirty, right? He's like, come on, get, rest of the, get, mess, get messed up all with the Play-Doh. Come on, I'm right here. Come in, come see me. Now I want you to remember, what did he tell Mary Magdalene not to do? Don't cling, don't touch, I haven't ascended to my father. But Thomas, he gets VIP access and goes, here, touch it. Reach out your hand, put it to my side. Don't be faithless, believe. He does it. He's like, come on. Thomas responded. It doesn't say whether Thomas actually touched him. Thomas responded, my Lord and my God. See, sometimes God wants us to have a little tangibility because sometimes he realizes we can't handle it and he gives us grace and shows us things. Sometimes God just shows off so that you go, my Lord and my God. You ever had that before? God doesn't owe you anything. God doesn't owe you any kind of explanation for anything. But have you ever had a moment that God just goes and all you can say is my Lord and my God. God meets us where we are and then shocks the heck out of us. And he blesses us about any, any amount that we ever could imagine just to show us who he is. So we cry out who he is. That we can't say it's because of financial success. That we can't say it's because of a good doctor. We only can say it because he is our Lord and our God. 
Thomas believes. And Jesus said, because you've seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And I don't, I don't think he's knocking Thomas. But every single one of us in this room believed without seeing. So Jesus is praying for us right when he's talking to Thomas saying, you believe because you saw I'm praying for all of those who are going to have to believe without seeing because he's going to send back up into the Father. All right, so let's make sure we're getting ready for baptisms now. We're getting close to being done. So we're going to get ready to start moving some stuff around. People are going to get changed. Let's look at verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that aren't written in this book. So John makes it clear so John, John's whole book, John's whole epistle is leading up to this right now. Because John's whole purpose was to explain how Jesus Christ is divine. How he's God in the flesh. And so John doesn't even take time to talk about the birth of Jesus Christ. He begins very early talking about Jesus' ministry in front of people, like the marriage of Cana and John chapter 3 and all these different things. The portions of scripture that we know really well. The whole point of John is to bring everything together to the culmination so that he can read the fact. And if we look at verse 31, if you can throw up verse 31 for me, please. Verse 31. This is his whole point. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. All the narrative, all the details that John has been mentioning, including the fact that he beats Peter to the tomb, was for you not only to understand that these are real life events that happen, these are real details, the folded napkin, little things, big things, all so that you understand that Jesus Christ was not only real, he's not just a historical figure, everything that he said he would do based on the scripture in the Old Testament was fulfilled by him and continues to happen in the New Testament. Jesus showed us who he was from the very beginning, and John wrote it down for us to understand. Why? Not for your knowledge, not for you to win a debate with your friends, but for you personally to recognize that Jesus Christ paid the price, died for your sins, and when he rose again from the grave, he showed us that he had the ability to not only defeat death, but to give us eternal life. And one of the greatest growth spurts that you and I could have in our Christian journey is to have doubt eradicated by understanding the importance of Jesus Christ rising again from the grave. That's what it's all about. Our whole eternal life rests on the fact that Jesus Christ rose again from the grave and that there is an empty tomb.